Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? We good? Good, awesome. Uh, well, as that uh, video showed, we are in a sermon series entitled Sermon on the Mount Kingdom Ethics, where for the next few months, we're going to be diving into Jesus's longest recording teaching on uh, how followers of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of God, are to reorient their lives uh, under the lordship of Christ and advance his kingdom in love. And so today, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We're going to read this text out loud together. You're going to help me preach this morning, whether you knew that or not. Um, And so let's get those verses on the screen as you're turning there, and we're going to read this out loud together. Join me. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's amazing when reading scripture just wrecks you before you have to preach. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we just come before you so grateful, God, for the new identity that you've proclaimed over us, God. All of us here in you, Christ Jesus, have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and have been embraced uh, by you, King Jesus, and adopted uh, as citizens into your amazing kingdom that will reign eternally, God. And so I ask Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, who's present with us, who's radically transformed us and changed our lives, you've filled us, God. You've gotten as close to us as as you can, God. The Spirit of Christ indwelling us, the light of the world shining inside of us. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and open up our hearts and open up our eyes even more to see your glory, Jesus. The truth of who you are, the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us, God. And may we be changed by your word today, God. May we humbly posture our hearts to yield to your lordship in our lives, Lord, because you say whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the call of Jesus is to come and die that we may find life in Christ everlasting. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and you'd have your way with your word and with your people and with our hearts. And I do ask, God, that what happens this morning uh, will have eternal impact outside the four walls of this building, God that we'll respond and we'll say, here we are, God, send us to darkness, send us to decay as salt and light with this precious gospel that you've entrusted to us, Lord Jesus. So thank you for the new identity. Thank you for the new life that you've breathed upon us, God. And may today, by the power of your spirit, may we leave here, God, walking out what you've already proclaimed to be true of us. And I ask Jesus that you be glorified and magnified up here and that I would decrease and you'd increase. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, um, last week, if you were here, John Scott brought the fire looking at the Beatitudes. Can you put your hands together? Yeah. I was going to wear my Rams jersey to preach him, but he had his Bengals jersey. I don't want to, anyways, I'm not a huge Rams fan. Anyways, uh, but he uh, he talked about uh, the Beatitudes, and uh, Jesus opens, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, that's Jesus' kind of opening illustration. He doesn't have a funny joke to tell or an antidote. He has the Beatitudes, and, and, and what the Beatitudes are, the Beatitudes are the central attitude, the central mindset that followers of Jesus are to clothe themselves in, are to uh, adopt and to value and to cherish. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are uh, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the, the God, the, the meek, those who mourn over their sins, they'll be comforted uh, by the gospel, um, the peacemakers those who are pure in heart, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so today in our text is, a, is, a, is immediately what follows the Beatitudes where Jesus shifts from declaring uh, what the central attitude uh, his followers are to adopt. And then what he does is he declares a core identity and influence that they will have to the ends of the earth. When Jesus proclaims over those listening in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, with our 21st century ears, we hear that and we say, I've heard it a million times. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But I have no idea what that means, right? 
for us with ourselves? Because we take, for us, like salt and light are commodities that we Gen Zers and millennials and even boomers, we take for granted, right? We, we kind of take those for granted. But for, in the first century, salt and light were indispensable household commodities. Whether you were rich or poor, uh, salt and light were indispensable to kind of your survival and thriving. So salt, the primary purpose of salt in the first century was to prevent food from going bad, was to prevent decay. It was a preservative. That's where its value was found. So in the first century, uh, if you went to the market, the Whole Foods market, and got some free-range uh, grass-fed camel sirloin, and you wanted to come home to your house and preserve that, you didn't pop it in your Samsung fridge that had a Wi-Fi connection and Netflix on it. You didn't, you didn't have that. What you had was salt to preserve that so it didn't go bad in like two minutes, okay? So basically, if you did not have salt in the first century, your meat and fish would spoil in like 30 minutes, which would mean that guaranteed you are forced to be a vegan, which is terrifying, right? <laughs> I heard an amen over here, but... <laughs> terrifying, right? It's haunting, and so no wonder. So, so because nobody wanted to be forced to be a vegan, even in the first century, uh, salt was, was referred to as white gold. Entire empires were built on the salt trade uh, to the extent that at one point, Roman soldiers were paid... A, uh, a monthly wage in salt. Like, could you imagine that auto payment, like a burlap sack of like Himalayan pink salt coming to your, you know, your, your door? And that, and that monthly payment to Roman soldiers of salt for their wages was called a, uh, a I'm, gonna, I'm gonna butcher this, salarium, when the, the, Latin, the Latin word for salt is salt. And the monthly payment was salarium. So where we get the words, etymologists believe, where we get the word salary is because some Roman soldiers back in the day got paid salt for their monthly wages because of how valuable that currency and that commodity was back then, okay? So this was immensely valuable to those in the first century. And the same with light. Light has its value just as much, like since time, since time began, humanity has faced the problem of how do you light your dwelling uh, and not walk in darkness and stub your toe on the nightstand uh, when the sun goes down? Like, how do you do that? And so in the first century, you had oil lamps, you had candles and all that stuff. If you did not have light in your household, you walked in utter darkness once the sun went down. And so if you today want to know, maybe you're taking it for granted and you're like, man, I'm taking all these 21st century luxuries for granted. And you really want to feel the weight of what salt and light, the value of salt and light in the first century, go home tonight, find your circuit breaker and cut the power to your house and let all the food go bad and live in darkness for like 48 hours. And let me know how that works out for you and you'll be begging Jesus for power, right? If you've ever been without power, that's, that's the value that salt had. It was a preservative. And yes, too, it, it added flavor. It added some pizzazz. Uh, so it's not either or. It, is, it adds flavor or it was a preservative. Um, it's both, but where its value was found was that it was preservative, okay? The value of salt and light are found in what they did to decay and what they did to darkness. Light displaces darkness, and salt forts decay from corrupting and ruining precious camel meat in your house, okay? And so what Jesus is saying to his followers is profound. He's saying this when he's saying, you are the salt and light of the world. What Jesus is saying to those gathered at the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying to a world that is dying and decaying under the curse of sin, you, my followers, will be the agents of renewal and restoration. To a world that is walking in utter darkness, blind to the beauty and the truth of the gospel in Christ Jesus, you, my followers, will bring this light, this precious gospel, to the ends of the earth. Now, it's important for us to remember, who is Jesus proclaiming this over in the immediate context, okay? He's proclaiming it to his followers who have gathered on the sermon, sermon on the Mount. We need to ask, who is Jesus placing this incredible, valuable, indispensable identity over? The agents of restoration who will change the landscape of human history forever. Is he talking to uh, uh, influential Roman officials? Is he talking to wealthy CEOs who have gathered? Is Jesus leading some uh, self-help business seminar here? Is he talking to uh, the most recent winner of Israel's Got Talent in the first century? Is that who's gathered in the Sermon on the Mount? No, no, no. At this point in Jesus' ministry, those that would have been gathered 
around Jesus as he is, as he is teaching this teaching would have been formally greedy, swindling tax collectors. Would have been, would have been, would have been once demonized prostitutes. That's what the gospel say. Mary Magdalene, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. That's who's gathered. That's who Jesus is saying, you, yes, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, blue-collar fishermen who have never left the region of Galilee, who have never even traveled east probably of the Jordan River. You, you will be agents of change. Formerly lame beggars who never walked a day in their life, no education, no occupational skills. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's over this group of followers that Jesus radically proclaims, you are single-handedly the most important group of people on the face of the earth. When Jesus says to his followers, to you and me, we have to understand the value he's placing on us. We are the most indispensable, most important people on the face of the earth to ever walk on the face of the earth because of what Christ has done to us and what he's entrusted to us. Most important people on the planet. To a, we, are salt to a, we are salt to a decaying world, and we are light to a world walking in darkness. Yes, you, indispensable agents of restoration that I have chosen to send to the ends of the earth. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of this group of Jesus' followers, they got their coffee, they got their moleskins out, they're, right, they're taking notes, they're all, they're all cozy, they dropped off their kids at kids' church, and they're listening to Jesus' sermon, and then he says this. The Beatitudes kind of challenging them, you know, okay, okay. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says this. And they immediately understand what he's saying. They're saying, Jesus, do you, do you know who you're talking to? Little old me? Just a, I'm just a blue-collar fisherman. Jesus, do you know my illicit past? You know how many, <laughs> you know how many demons you cast out of me, Jesus? Me? Light? Me? Salt? I'm a greedy, swindling tax collector, Jesus. What are you saying? This can't be true of me. And listen, the reason this ragtag group of followers of Jesus would change, this is, this is not, if you're here today, you're watching, you're not a believer. This is a historically true statement. The history proves that this to be true. The reason this ragtag group of followers of Jesus would change the entire landscape of human history, they changed the entire landscape of you. Every continent has had the gospel of Christ shine there because of this Sermon on the Mount, because of what Jesus did with these followers, these people. The reason they changed the entire landscape of human history is because Jesus forever rewrote the you are of their lives. That's what Jesus comes and does. He completely rewrites the you are that's spoken over your life. And, and before he gives us a you ought, he gives us a, new, a brand new you are. And that's the beautiful work that Jesus Christ comes to do in the gospel is he reclaims us out of the kingdom of darkness and then he renames us and then out of that new identity, he gives us a new ethic of the kingdom of God, a new purpose. He looked at the demonized prostitute and he said, stop doing this, cut it out, you're a sinner. He declared over her life, your sins, my beloved, are forgiven. And that forgiveness ruined her in the best sense of the term. It radically changed her life transformed her. He looks at these Galilean fishermen who, who their fishing hole is just this, the, the, the small lake of Galilee, if you will. And he says, you want to know the fishing hole that I'm declaring over your life? You are fishers of men to the ends of the earth. And this gospel went to the ends of the earth and has gone to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Jesus proclaims a new you are over his followers. Where the enemy has said, you are uh, condemned and you are worthless and you are a sinner. Jesus says you are saved. You are forgiven. You are beloved. You're not rejected. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are mine, is what Jesus says. And that changes us. That changes us. Simple truth, salt and light. What Jesus says, it's what you are long before it's what you do. It's what you are. Jesus here, notice, he is not making a command first. He is proclaiming a new identity over you. He's pro proclaiming a new identity. He says, you are salt and light. That's what you are. That's, that's the new creation I've made you to be. When the light of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit fills you, boom, you now have become the light of the world. You are a new creation. That's regeneration. That's new life. You have to be born again. 
You have to have the Spirit of God fill you and change you from being dead in your trespasses to alive and resurrected in Christ Jesus. And um, that's what Jesus does here. He gives us the you are before he gives us the you are, the you, the you ought. He came to reclaim and to rename, and then he repurposes us. He gives us a new name and a new identity before he gives us the new ethic. And uh, in the summer, last, <laughs> this summer, I, um, man, I love having like an old phone. Anyone here love having an old phone? Because you don't care about it. Hear kids play with it, throw it against the wall, like not a big deal, right? And then if you get a new phone, it's kind of terrifying. You know, you're like worried about it, and it's really expensive, and all that stuff. So I had this iPhone 6 that I was holding on to for dear life, man. And the way I thought, because this is how tech savvy I am, I thought that if you don't update the software, yeah, 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 you know. I went to seminary, not IT school. Okay, so um, I thought if you don't update the software that you'll get longevity out of it. But then my app started wor stopped working after like a year. Like this will stop, you will, like, you will not be able to communicate with anyone until you up. So I'm like, dang it, I have to update it. I, uh, after not, like for maybe six months to a year, I didn't update the iOS. I update the new software on an old phone and the phone like literally just caught on fire and just blew up. That didn't, that didn't happen. But essentially what happened is that it didn't work anymore. And I went to, uh, I don't know, Sprint bought T-Mobile or vice versa. I went somewhere to some cell phone place and, uh, and repeatedly brought it in. They couldn't fix it. And then anyways, I had to buy, I had to buy uh, a new phone. But what Jesus does in our life is he doesn't just come and give us an ethic on old software. He doesn't give us new software on an old phone. What he first does is Jesus goes to, uh, to Radio Shack. You guys remember Radio Shack? Yeah. Go on Google Maps and punch in Radio Shack, and you'll see a graveyard of red pins of permanently closed. Uh, it's, it's kind of sad. Because I, I, as I was prepping the sermon, I, I had Radio Shack come to mind. I was like, I wonder if the Radio Shack's still a thing. And I was like, ooh, no, it's, it's not. Uh, so Jesus goes, this is, this is uh, in a way, describing his incarnational ministry, the, the king of kings leaving his throne and coming and seeking and saving that which is lost. As he goes to Radio Shack, and he doesn't want the iPhone 18, he goes and he says, where's, where's the used section? Where's that iPhone 2 that's dead, dirty, the screen is shattered, it's had a rough life of impurity and wickedness and, and rejection, and Jesus comes and he purchases that. He purchases that with his very life. He says, that phone I want so much that I will get nailed to a cross and absorb the wrath of God for the sins of man just to reclaim that. That phone that's been rejected and abandoned, Jesus waltzes in and he marches in and he goes into the darkness and he says, that one belongs to me and I'm purchasing it with my blood. And then what he does is then he breathes life into it and he recreates this phone and he renames it. He renames it. It's not an iPhone 2. It's like an iPhone 2000, right? It's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so he reclaims, he recreates, he renames. And then after all of that, Jesus gives us the software update, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you are a new creation. I've spoken a new you are over your life. You are a new creation. You are now not citizens of the kingdom of darkness. You're, the, you're in the kingdom of God. You're, you're, the, the light of Christ has shown in your hearts. You've responded with faith uh, to follow me. So you're a new creation. Now let me give you the software update. Let me, I've spoken that you are. And the Sermon on the Mount now is you are. You ought uh, you are. So the sermon, so the salt and light is what we are long before it's what we do. And 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11, uh, beautifully unpacks this. It says this, but you are a chosen race. Look at the you are. Look at the new you are that God speaks over us, church. You are a chosen race. God has not rejected you. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 teaches us. A royal priesthood. If you feel like you're trash, you're treasure, you're royalty. You're royalty in God's sight if you are in Christ Jesus. You're seated with Christ, Ephesians 2, 6 says, in the highest places. Priesthood, meaning you have access to the presence of God. You can minister because of what Christ has done, our truer and better high priest. We have access to the presence of God, a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a people for God's own possession. We belong to God. Why? Here comes our repurposing, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who reclaimed us out of darkness into his marvelous life. Once we were not a people, but now you are God's 
people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Jesus, the reason we are gathered here today, all of us, is because Jesus has spoken and declared and created a new you are over your life. And so then the question I have for you is, what false you are are you believing over your life? That is not of Christ, but is of the enemy. Jesus says, you are the most important people on the planet Earth. Yes, you, right here in this room, Transit Church, the few of us gathered here in Alexandria, Jesus is saying, you are the most indispensable, most valuable people on the face of the Earth because do you have any idea who's inside of you? Do you have any idea the power of the gospel that has been entrusted to us? It causes darkness to flee. It causes the curse of sin to be reversed, the kingdom of heaven to invade the sin-cursed kingdom of Earth. That's the value. So any thought that comes that is not in line with the you are beloved, you are forgiven, you are not condemned, but you are redeemed. Anything that comes against that is not of God and is not sanctifying. It's of the devil and needs to be renounced and turned from and repented of. And when you and I wake up to our identity and who we truly are, it truly changes everything about us because we need to understand, we need to stop walking and living out this old iOS this old, we've been given a new, we've been uh, created new and be given a new software to operate. We need, and that's what uh, Romans 12, 2 tells us, is that we now who've been entrusted with this gospel need to not no longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, believing that you are, that Jesus has spoken over us. So what we see next is that Jesus proclaims this you are over this kind of ragtag group of followers who will change the world historically. Who will change the world? This group, these Palestinian peasants, you know, who have all gathered there, they change the landscape of human history after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they go to the ends of the earth. It's it's a fact of history, okay? Because Jesus changes the you are, but then with this renaming comes a complete repurposing of our lives, right? Jesus comes that he gives us life and life abundantly. So with this new identity comes a new repurposing of our lives are stated differently. Conversion always comes with a commission. The, the, the second you come to Jesus, you now are commissioned to go tell others about him. The second you are redeemed out of darkness into marvelous light, you are commissioned to return to that darkness and proclaim the light that you have found in Christ Jesus. And uh, that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11 is saying, is that those who, call, those who are called out of darkness into marvelous light are commissioned by Christ to run full sprint back to that darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus. So as salt of the earth and light of the, the, the world, the entire orientation and purpose of our life changes. Because what Jesus is saying is, in a way, we are the world's salt. Like we are the world's light, like the not, it's the definite article, not A, not indefinite article, not, we're not one of many salt, you know, or you have like 15 different salts in your pantry, you got Himalayan, you got Celtic, you know, you got the normal salt, like, you know, for you, for you salt aficionados, right? Jesus is saying there's only one salt, there's only one light, it's you and I, to a dying and decaying and dark world, it's you and I, and we are commissioned to go and to seek that out and to shine brightly for Jesus. And before we're staggered by this, we have to understand what an honor and a privilege this is that Jesus would entrust to us, right? It is a, it's, not, it's not that we have to go do this and we have to share our faith and we have to go to the nations. We get to. As followers of Jesus, every single day of our lives is God the Father taking his kids to work day. He says, pack your lunch, get your snack packs you know, ready, get your cute little backpack, and join me in restoring all things. In making this world brand new, he, he redeems us out of darkness. And he says, now join me in Acts. When we went through Acts, when the Holy Spirit's poured out, that's Jesus passing the baton to the church. And he's saying, finish what I've started. I came to usher in the kingdom of God, the restoration of all things, the reverse of the curse of sin. Here's the Holy Spirit. Here's the commission. Now go. It's amazing. There's nothing more exciting than that. Where the Jesus, when he commissions the 12, he commissions the 72. He says, wherever you see sin, proclaim forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Wherever you catch a whiff of the demonic, bring deliverance and set the captive free. Wherever there's disease and sickness and death, you bring healing and resurrection in my name. You bring the power of the kingdom by the power of the spirit, clothed and wrapped in love. And this world will be chained from the bottom up, not the top down. 
And it happened. It happened post-Acts, post-Pentecost. This is what happens, and it's still happening today. It's the most amazing privilege that Jesus gives to us when he says we are the salt and light of the world. It's not just that we're given a new identity. Now we're given a new mission, and it's highly valuable. It's critical that we don't go into hiding. It's critical that we don't get deluded because the world depends on what we are carrying. It depends on what we are carrying, and that leads Jesus to this disclaimer is, yes, he proclaims this new identity and this mission and this purpose, but simultaneously he gives a warning. He gives a warning to his followers, a disclaimer of sorts. And he says it's possible for light and salt to to be completely ineffective. And this is what he says in verses 13 through 16, 15. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a, set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. Do you realize that Jesus, what he's done in your life, he wants you on a stand. He doesn't want you in hiding. He loves you. He cherishes you. He's done a beautiful work in your life. He doesn't want you in hiding. He wants you on display. He wants his work. Like every craftsman who makes messy things beautiful, he wants your life, your testimony of what he's done in your life on display. He has a vested interest in that. That's how he's glorified. And the two dangers we face as salt and light that would render us effective, ineffective is this. If we were to ask what renders salt ineffective as a, restore, a, a restorative agent, what renders it ineffective is if it gets diluted and watered down and, and laden with a bunch of impurities right? If salt, Jesus says, has lost its taste, has lost its saltiness, he's saying it's, it's worthless. See, with salt, Jesus isn't talking about its distance from decay. Jesus is saying it's lost its purity and its power. So it can be close to the world, but it's lost its distinctness. It's lost its potency. It's lost its purity. And uh, a common um, claim that, uh, uh, I guess, atheists would make against what Jesus is saying here is they would say that, well, Jesus Sodium chloride is a a very stable chemical compound, and it cannot lose its saltiness. Therefore, Jesus wasn't the son of God because he didn't know science, right? That's how that that goes, okay? And just real quick, just so we know, uh, Jesus is speaking in an illustrative way. He is not in a lab coat with safety goggles speaking like Bill Nye, the science guy, okay? So he's speaking in an illustration, and everyone there on the Sermon Mount would understand what Jesus is saying. Because the primary source, uh, or one of the primary sources where salt was mined from was the Dead Sea. And the salt that would come out of the Dead Sea, they didn't have a refinery there, so the quality was actually very poor. It was very hard to get pure, potent salt out of it. it, was just, it was just, they would just collect this white powder, essentially, from the Dead Sea. And you might, you, might get some really, you might get a lot of salt in that white powder, but with that white powder, you're also getting a lot of impurities and additives and fillers. It's lost its purity. It's lost its power. That's how salt loses its saltiness. It is a stable compound, but if you dilute that thing with a million small impurities, it completely loses its effectiveness. Completely loses its effectiveness. So the application that follows for the salt of the earth, what Jesus is saying is don't get diluted. Matthew 5, 8, what's the beatitude? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I think one of the reasons, one of the tragedies uh, that the church is um, I guess you could say impotent and ineffective in, in massive gospel influence today is because we're dying the death of a million small worldly delusions. Let me say that again. We're dying the death of a million small worldly delusions that are robbing us of our distinctness, robbing us of our purity, and robbing us of our power to transform lives. Uh, we inundate ourselves with everything and anything the pagan world is consuming and viewing and listening to and valuing and cherishing to the point that when people look at the church in America today, there is no distinction between what we are chasing after and what pagans are chasing after. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6 later on in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about food and clothing. Don't worry about where you're going to lay your head. He says the, the pagans seek after these things. But you, you seek first the kingdom of God and your father will add these things to you. Will add these things to you. We're dying the death of a million small worldly dilution to the extent that there's no distinctions 
between what we cherish and value and what the world cherishes and values. And what scripture makes crystal clear is that this world is not morally neutral territory to the believer. When you, when you come to know Jesus, you are on the current, uh, on a highway to literally to hell, to destruction, and Jesus comes and he turns your boat and now you're rowing upstream. So the world and the flesh and the devil are doing everything they can to cause you to drift further and further away from Jesus and your calling. That's why uh, in James, he says that pure religion is to, is, he says this, is to be, to remain unstained from the world, to be holy, to be consecrated unto God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. The presupposition under that command is that the world is actually seeking to conform you into its image and likeness with what we consume. And um, if we were to do an audit, if we were to do an audit, I would just ask this question. How do we audit our delusion, our spiritual delusion? Would be this. What worldly additives and fillers are you constantly adding to your life? What, what are the million small delusions that are robbing you, that are constantly, if your gaze is fixed on Jesus, that are constantly pulling your chin down? Is it that Amazon shopping addiction, right? Got to get that new gadget. Is it, is it just watching what everybody else is watching on HBO Max and Netflix? We realize that, um, that those things shape us into their image and likeness as we view that. If we were to tally up the hours we spend in prayer and seeking God and serving our neighbor to the point that we are entertaining ourselves to death, what would, what would that look like? What would come out on the other side of that equation? Let's audit these, these million small dilutions because the invitation of consecration is this, the pure in heart, you'll see God. Like there is no greater motivation for walking in personal holiness and a concentration onto God than you will see the living God, the creator of the universe. You'll have a clarity to his voice, a sense of his presence and his leadership in your life. And so don't get deluded, stay salty. What are those worldly fillers and additives that we need to remove from our lives and repent from? And then if we were to ask, well, what renders light ineffective to displace darkness? Well, it's just distance. If light goes into hiding, then there's no darkness that it is displacing. Jesus says no one lights a lamp in a household and then immediately covers it and puts it in a basket. No, they set it on a lampstand. And that's the tension we face. Here's the tension we face as followers of Jesus. What he's saying is this, is we are to be distinct from the world in our holiness unto God and to clothing ourselves into the ethics of the kingdom of God, not the ethics of the, this world. We're to be distinct from the world, but not distant from it. That's the tension. Is, is relationally, we chase after Jesus with everything we have, and then relationally, we chase after those outside the body of Christ with everything we have as well. We stay as close to Jesus and as close to darkness as we can without getting polluted by darkness but we don't keep our distance from See, here's the deal about personal holiness. We've completely misinterpreted. It is a consecration unto God. There's things that are detestable to God that we think are entertainment that we need to repent and turn from, right? But listen, personal holiness unto God always will manifest in love for your fellow man. It is not this prudish, fundamental, distant, I don't cuss and drink and smoke or roll with those who do type of thing. Like, that's not it. That's not it. True love True followership of Jesus, true holiness will always manifest in proximity to the lost and proximity to the least of these of society, which Jesus talks about in Matthew 25. That's a holy life. That's a consecrated life unto God. Following Jesus where Jesus went, loving those who Jesus loved, not keeping our distance, getting out of the salt shaker, getting out of the four walls of the church and going where Jesus went himself and has invited us to go invited us to go. And that's the refrain that we have is this, is we are in the world, not of the world, but radically for the world. Do you guys catch that? Because often we go, I'm in the world, I'm not of the world. So let me move to the Midwest, stock up on ammo and rations and let the world burn, right? Jesus says, as salt and light, you can't do that. You cease to be a follower of me if you do that. You cease to be salt and light. If, well, or you, you're rendered completely ineffective as salt and light if that's, if that's your MO. Salt and light do their best work in the darkest of situations. That's where they do their best work. That's where we're called to shine. We're in the world, not of the world, but radically for the world, radically for 
the world. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, and I'm going to conclude with this. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Boom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life for the gospel. Flight into the invisible is the denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. So I'll call up the band and I'll conclude with this story. One of my, my favorite stories that I go back to, not story, but Jesus encounters in the gospels is the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. If you know the story, uh, there comes a point in Jesus' ministry where he goes from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side. And what was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee was this region of the, Deca- the Decapolis. It was pagan. It was Gentile. It was, it was uh, demonically infiltrated, if you will. And Jesus crosses the sea, and a massive storm comes. Jesus rebukes the storm, and he lands, and he crosses all that way to have this encounter with one demonized individual. In Luke 8, we read about the story. And uh, this man was the, uh, the crazy guy, the town crazy guy, right? It says in uh, the Gospels that he was uh, in caves, guarded. Uh, there was guards over there by caves. He was heavily demonized. You could hear his shrieking and groaning from the city. He'd be cutting himself. They'd chain him up. He'd break those chains. Uh, he was the epitome. He was the epitome of what uh, uh, sin and the demonic can do to a person's life. The decay and the darkness of sin and the demonic can do to a person's life. And Jesus doesn't keep his distance saying, oh, this man, imagine the stench this guy had, the decay that was on this guy's life, right? It was messy. The guy's screaming. He runs to Jesus. His demons are screaming at the top of his lungs. He's probably not clothed. He's scarred. Uh, just a, a sight, just, just uh, a, a sight for like, just, you don't want to see it, right? It's just messy. And the light of the world shines into the darkness of this man's life and displaces all of it. So much so, so much this man's life was radically transformed. Jesus casts all these demons out of him. If you know the story, radically sets this man free to the point now that he's sitting. It says he's sitting in his sound mind to the extent that all the townspeople are terrified. And they, be- they actually beg Jesus to leave because he healed the, the, crazy, the crazy guy, crazy demonized guy. And so this guy, there comes a day in this guy's life where light enters the darkness of his world. If Jesus stayed hidden, that man would have been saved. If Jesus stayed on the west side of the Galilee and even turned around because of the storm, because it was hard, because it was scary and the disciples were saying, we're gonna die here. If Jesus turned around, that man never got saved, healed and delivered. The light never shone in the darkness. Salt never came and restored the decay that was happening in that guy's life. And so Jesus goes, radically transforms this guy's life. His life is radically changed. And what happens in this, the story is that this man now begs to go with Jesus. Literally, he begs. He's like, it says in the text, he's begging to go on the boat with Jesus. Get me out of, get me out of, there's no Christians here, Jesus. I'm so scared of going back to my former ways. It's pagan here. There's no believers. I need like that two-year discipleship training course with you and the disciples. Like, yeah, there's only 12 of you in there. They're like, like 13, like make it 14. Let me come with you on the boat and roll with you. Let me do this. And what Jesus says is staggering. Conversion always comes with a commission. This is what he says. Luke 8, 38 through 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. But watch this, Jesus sent him away. What you're carrying can't stay in the boat is what he's saying. What I've done to you can't stay in the four walls of the church. Your light can't stay under a basket. You you as salt can't stay in the salt shaker. Jesus sent him out of the boat. You can't come with me. There's others walking in darkness that you need to go and you need to tell them. This is what Jesus says, he commissions him. He renames him. He reclaims him. He radically changes his life. And he says, you go and you tell him what I've done. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. That's what he does. Immediately he's commissioned. He goes back to the darkness from where he came from. And he tells his friends and he tells his family, the first missionary to the Gentiles was this demonized man who was set free. Didn't get 
more than a day of discipleship with Jesus. He had a testimony, a living testimony of what the real Jesus had done in his life. And Jesus said, now you go shine brightly and you go tell him and I'm coming back for you. Love it. Oh, it fires me up. You can't stay with me. Go tell them what I've done for you. And this is what leads to our invitation in the text. Jesus' invitation, salt and light, the light of the world. Here's this beautiful thing that Jesus invites us to do to a dark world that desperately needs what we're carrying. In the same way, verse 16 of our text, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The simple application of our text, when we think of the global darkness and decay, it can be overwhelming. The simple application, what Jesus was specific with this guy, he said, you go, you go return to your home. It starts at home first and you tell him. And so who's the one person in your life that needs a phone call from you this week? that doesn't know Jesus. Their hearts have been blinded to the gospel. Maybe they've been wounded by the church. Maybe they need light to start shining brightly. Maybe they need someone to finally tell them what Jesus is actually like. Maybe the church needs to go and get face to face with certain communities and certain people and so, so that they stop listening to all the, uh, the puppets that the demonic has placed on screens of crazy fundamentalists who are, who are misrepresenting Christ. Who's the one person this week that we need to grab lunch with, grab coffee with, get eyeball to eyeball with, and tell them what Jesus has done in our lives. And then watch this. True story. What if, what if when we do that to a friend that we've known for our entire lives and we've been a terrible witness to, right? Hardly shared the gospel. If we did, it was a botched gospel presentation. Grab coffee like once a year always talking about sports, never really leads anywhere. And you're praying your guts out and saying, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I sure I got the training, sure, the, you know, got the arguments, all that stuff. But Lord, I want this man to know you so bad. I want, I want him to know you so bad. And I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say, hey, how you been, bro? Let me tell you about you. You know, like, how, what's the segue? And you're praying your guts out the night before and you're praying on the way there and the Lord gives you nothing, no dream, no vision, no work, nothing. You go completely dark. And then the Holy Spirit, when you're in the moment, just slaps it on the back and you say, you did literally tell him what I've done for you in October of 2019. He asks how your year's been, you tell him. You testify to the real God. Don't you shy away from what God has done. And so my mouth opens with a friend who did, who did not know Jesus, but knows him now. And I'm not saying this to brag at all because I didn't do any of this, it was God. To the point that I was actually halfway through while I was sharing my story, I said, hey bro, I don't know if I'm supposed to be telling you this. And he was wide, I said, you have to tell me everything, you tell me everything. And so I found out, we met up, I tell him a story of, of, of massive deliverance that Jesus gave me, a new life, the power of God coming over me, my life being radically transformed uh, by the power of Jesus. It was amazing, I was telling him this. And I didn't know this at the time, but he said we needed to meet up two days later, and I meet up with him two days later after sharing this with him, and he said, Nick, you will not believe this, and I've shared this story before, but it, it bears repeating, because I want to, this is why I'm sharing this, I want to instill faith in us that when we go to the darkness, we don't go alone. The light of Christ is inside of us. When Jesus says, I am with you to the ends of the earth, he actually meant it. He's actually with us. What if when we go, his presence falls on those we're talking to? To the extent that two days later, they come back and said, the second you started sharing that story, there was this power and this peace and this presence that came over me that was so powerful, I could barely drive out of the parking garage when I was leaving. What is that? Tell me what that is. I want more of that. Well, let me tell you, it's called the Holy Spirit. And if you give your life to Jesus, that's your inheritance forever. The presence of God forever. Saturday, I pray again. No swinging of a blazer, no laying on of hands. I don't know how to describe it. The presence of God comes. I don't say anything about it. I just, I just feel that peace and that presence come. And I, I say amen and I smile and he looks at me. He goes, are you feeling that too? And I said, it's the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. He was burned by the church, dead, dry, dead orthodoxy. No spiritual stuff. Anyways, he has a buddy pick him up who's a non-Christian and they're on a two-hour road trip on Saturday. I circle back to them two days later, we meet up and he says, you won't believe this. 
I started testifying to what I was experiencing and me and my buddy for two hours were being wrecked by this power and presence and peace that I've, that I've never encountered before. And now my friend is, 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 is gave his life to Jesus and he's walking with Jesus. And the reason I share that is, is not to at all, whatever, like, like, you know, toot my own horn and put my righteousness, that's not it at all. It's to instill faith and confidence in you that when Jesus says the way the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, Acts 1-8, is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be clothed in power to be my witnesses. And so when we go this week, Transit Church, one person, one person that desperately needs light, that's walking in darkness, just one person, what if God radically touches their lives? What if before we even meet up, they say, hey, I gotta tell you a dream I had about this man who visited me. What if God is on the move? What if, what if this congregation is filled, doubled in size this month because the Lord radically changes lives as salt and light stop, go out of hiding and get out of the salt shaker, nervous, scared, ill-equipped, but we go because the light of Christ has shown in our hearts and we have to tell somebody about what Jesus has done for us. We gotta tell somebody, we gotta tell somebody they desperately need what we're carrying. They desperately need what we're carrying. This is what I'll conclude with in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Church, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Our good works, our light, it's not our light. It's all that Jesus has done for us. It's all grace. And we don't proclaim ourselves, right? We're a bunch of, of ragamuffins that have been redeemed by Jesus and filled with his presence. We don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is true of us. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're not walking in darkness anymore, transit family. Jesus' light has shown in our hearts. We've received forgiveness We've received salvation. We've been made a new creation and we've been given a new beautiful ethic to base our life upon. And the beautiful invitation of Jesus is saying, now go tell somebody about it. Go tell somebody about this light that you have seen. Go tell somebody about this joy that you have found in me. And let's do that this week. Let's, let's take a moment, we'll go quiet and let's bring our hearts to the Lord. Would you join me in this prayer I've been praying these last couple months of, of asking God to remove my apathy towards the lost. What, what, what trumps fear of man in sharing the gospel is compassion, is love. And so ask God for what you don't have. Ask God for a love for the lost that moves you to draw near and not keep your distance. And where we've gone hidden and where we've been silent or where we've been deluded, let's bring our hearts to God to receive fresh mercy and fresh forgiveness to God. Our God is steadfast in his love. His mercies are new every morning. So I'm gonna go quiet and give you all a moment to respond to the preached word. that you would, you would reveal names and faces of people you want us to, to draw near towards this week, God. Maybe relationships that have gone cold. People we've forgotten. People maybe we haven't talked to in 10 years. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would bring revelation of, of those, that low-hanging fruit, that one person in our life that we could grab a, a seat with and just share all that you are and all that you've done for us this week, God. And Holy Spirit, I ask God where we've lost the beauty and wonder of what we possess in you, God, that you would open up our eyes to see how beautiful you are, how precious your gospel is. Lord, would you illumine our hearts and our eyes, God. Return to us the joy of our salvation, God. Would you just set us on fire out of love for you, Lord Jesus, that there's a, a burning in our chest that we have to go tell somebody about how good you are, Lord God. So return us, God, to the love we had at first, maybe that day one of following you, Jesus. 
Would you turn up the heat in our life where we're lukewarm? Would you make us white hot, God, in love for you and love for the lost, Lord Jesus? And we need your help. We need your help, God. And I pray, God, if, if there's any condemnation that's resting over anyone, I pray that'd be broken off in the name of Jesus right now. You don't come to condemn, you, you come to convict. And conviction leads to life and repentance. Conviction is a gift from you, God. Condemnation is from the enemy. And so your word says that there's, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I break that off. Any false you are's uh, that, that, uh, that people are believing and resting in, I just pray that they'd be broken off right now, Jesus. And I pray that you would speak what is true, the true you are, our true identity over us, God, and that we would uh, cling to that, we would receive that new identity, and we would just live out what we already are in you, Christ Jesus. And so we pray, God, by the power of your spirit, that you'd give us opportunities to shine brightly to a world that desperately needs uh, the light that you've shown in our hearts. And so we love you, and we bless your name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, uh, we're going to respond by taking communion, and then we'll close with worship. Uh, If you need some communion elements, run to the hallway, uh, grab some in there at home, grab some bread and wine or juice at home. Uh, What this meal meal shows is uh, Jesus, the light of the world, entered into darkness. He entered into darkness. He's actually enveloped in darkness. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we celebrate our salvation today with this meal. We celebrate the love of God. We celebrate that love didn't keep its distance. Jesus didn't keep his distance from us, but he drew near to you, to me, to his enemies, to sinners. He drew near and he, he, he purchased us. He reclaimed us and he renamed us with his broken body and his shed blood. That's what this meal symbolizes, the price that Jesus paid to reclaim you and to purchase you out of the clutches of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we receive this by faith. It's what he's done for us. This is our identity. We've been purchased. We've been possessed by Christ and nothing and no one can separate us from his hand. And as we look to this and we remember who our savior is and what he does, hopefully the Holy Spirit comes and warms our affections for Jesus. And as we look to the cross that this meal symbolizes, it moves us to say, okay, Jesus, now how can I go and do to others what you've done for me? So take uh, the, the top wafer here. This represents the body of Christ broken for you and broken for me. This juice represents the blood of Jesus shed for your sins and mine. All right, let's sing one last song of worship to our King and then we'll close.